Please remain standing as you're able. If you'll follow after me, we'll follow very likely after uh, the example of Jesus and recite what he called the great commandment. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Be seated, please. To lead up to the scripture this morning, I need to tell you a little bit uh, longer story. Last week we talked about uh, King Saul. Well, today I want to tell you a little bit about King David as we come to the text. King David had a number of wives, so he had what we might say uh, a blended family. And his oldest son was a guy named Amnon. Uh, but Amnon, his oldest son, uh, fell in love uh, with a daughter that David had by another woman, and her name was Tamar. She had a brother named Absalom. Well, actually, fall in love is too nice. He fell in lust, and, and he assaulted her. And, uh, and after uh, she told her brother that she had been raped, two interesting things didn't happen. The brother didn't respond, and nor did the father, King David. Instead, the brother, Absalom, waited two years to get revenge on Amnon for what he had done to Absalom's sister, Amnon's half-sister. And so two years later, he has a surprise party of sorts, and uh, Amnon is uh, surprised and assassinated. Now, Amnon is David's oldest son, so he is therefore the heir to the throne, and he is now dead. Now, Absalom knows this is not going to go over very well with his father, so he leaves the country. And his father lets him stay away for three years before finally his advisors say, you know, you're upset about this, bring him back. So David uh, brings back Absalom, who has murdered Amnon, and he's brought back with David, but David says, you can come back, but I don't want to see you, and then doesn't see him for two years. Well, Absalom makes good use of this time, and he begins to curry favor among the people. He hangs out around the city gate, which is kind of like city hall, where decisions are made. And he said, if you've got a problem for the king, bring it to me. I'll solve it for you. And so he begins to get followers. He begins to form his own army. And soon enough, under his father's nose, Absalom has uh, established a full-scale revolt. And so war breaks out between the soldiers in support of Absalom and the king's army in support of David. And after a while, though, the tide begins to turn and David's soldiers um, are winning. And so David says to his chief general and Joab and his soldiers, Now, when you find my son Absalom, deal gently with him. For my sake, deal gently with him. Well, sure enough, they find Absalom because in one of the most, in my mind, beautiful stories in the Bible, Absalom is running along, um, riding along on his horse and he has so much hair that his hair gets caught in a tree. We'll talk about biblical justice another day. And so he's caught in a tree, just hanging there. Well, the two, so, two soldiers come upon him, but they heard the king say, deal gently with him. So they're trying to figure out what to do. Well, General Joab comes up and he, by God, he knows what to do. We're going to end this rebellion right now. And he kills Absalom. So where we pick up the story this morning is when David hears that his son Absalom has been killed. 
The king was shaken. He went up to a room over the gate and wept. As he went, he cried out, Oh, Absalom, my son, oh, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, word got back to General Joab that that David is mourning and grieving the loss of his son. So on that day, the victory for the army turned into mourning because they had heard it said, the king is grieving and mourning Absalom. And so the men on that day stole into the city as men who are ashamed because they fled battle steal into the city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My mentor uh, years ago uh, told me about his very first funeral uh, in North Carolina. The funeral, at the funeral, it was open casket, and it was a 20-year-old widow. And her husband, uh, who, who had died, was 21. And when it came time to close the casket, her response was she jumped in the casket with him and refused to let go. Many years later, in uh, north-central Texas, I am doing a funeral at a funeral home. This is a closed casket, but the time has come now to move the casket from the funeral home to the burial site there at the cemetery. But we cannot get the widow off the top of the casket to move either the casket or the widow or to go forward. Why is it that grief can have such profound effects on people. I mean, look at David today. David is not a man unfamiliar with grief. By the time we see him in the story today, he's already lost a young child who, um, that he had with Bathsheba who died as an infant. He's already lost his lifelong best friend, Jonathan. He's already had the crown prince, the heir to the throne, his oldest son, murdered by another one of his sons. He's gone through all that. And he's still standing And yet at this moment, when word reaches him of Absalom's death, he is so out of control with his grief that he is on the verge of losing the support of his soldiers and maybe even losing his hard-fought kingdom that has just been restored to him. Why is it that grief sometimes works like that in people's lives? Um, Hard to know. Last week we tried to establish that everybody's grief is the worst. I mean, there's no sense comparing your grief with another person's grief. We all take it individually. But when you see the effects of grief so different uh, on one person, it begins to make you wonder why it's so different than one person. And some uh, reasons, I suppose, are the circumstances of the loss could make a difference. Uh, That may make one grief different from you than another. Or perhaps um, uh, the previous losses. Remember we said last week that losses are, are compounded by the time they get to you because a loss calls up memory of every other loss. So maybe it's just you have such a long history that this one, in a sense, tips you over the edge. Maybe. But here's my theory this morning as I look at David's story in the scripture. David and Absalom have a lot of unfinished business on the table. Just a cursory look at their relationship shows that when Absalom had committed murder, uh, well, first of all, when Absalom's sister was raped, David looked the other way. When Absalom committed murder, David more or less looked the other way. When his son was finally brought back to the palace, David looked the other way again and ignored him. And then when his son began to rally people and troops against him again, David was somewhat at a distance. A lot of perhaps unfinished business between the two of them. When I go back to my mentor's first funeral, 
the 20-year-old widow is a newlywed. They've only been married three weeks. They've already had their first fight. And as a result of the first fight, her 21-year-old husband apparently grabbed the keys to the truck and drove off. He said, I'm going fishing. But he stopped at the bait shop along the way and picked up two six-packs of beer. And he consumed every one of them. Drunk, he fell into the very water from which he was fishing, and he drowned. And so her last memory of him is her husband driving off angry because of something in their relationship that had happened. When I think about the funeral I did in north central Texas, it wasn't an event like that. But as we planned the funeral, the widow had told me that the last few years they had begun to grow distant from one another. And they could see the gap, but neither one of them had taken a step to try to close that gap. It is quite possible that one of the main factors in intensifying our grief and any loss is the amount of unfinished business we have with a person who is no longer with us, either because they left or they have died. So here's my thinking this morning. I just want to share with you two things. Uh, One will probably be pretty obvious from what I've already said, which is I want to tell you something I think you should do before loss hits, before that moment of grief comes. And then I want to tell you something I think you could do afterwards. And so my best advice is, in all of your relationships, keep them current and clean and up to date. Take care of whatever needs to be said. Do whatever needs to be done while you still can. There are a number of occasions where the Bible will say, while it is still called today, most notably in Hebrews, and it will talk about the day of salvation. Well, in the same way, we know that we only have this moment to be sure that we're alive, and perhaps this moment to be sure the other person's still alive. And so while we have that moment, we need to say what needs to be said. Um, Paul put it this way to the Ephesians, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Just don't take a chance. Deal with it now. There's something that needs to be said. Say it. Maybe you need to say, I'm sorry, or I was wrong, or maybe you need to say, I love you. A friend of mine was talking the other day about the practice of saying to his children before they go to bed at night, I am so proud of you. Every night, that's the last thing they hear before their head hits the pillow. Maybe there's something we need to say. Or maybe there's something we need to do. Maybe we need to perhaps invest more time in something. You've heard the old cliche that on our deathbeds, none of us is going to say, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. It's going to be the relationships that count. Jesus thought it was so important. He said, you know, when you're coming to synagogue or temple or you're coming to church and you get ready to make your offering, and I believe offerings are a good thing, but that's another story. He said, don't do it. If you remember somebody has something against you, not you have something against somebody, they have it against you. He said, man, you just leave the temple, you leave the synagogue at that moment, and you go and take care of that. And you can tell the sense from some other parables that Jesus tells that his sense is you take care of it while you can. He'll say in one other uh, parable, you know, take care of the debt now. Settle before you go to court was another way he talked about relationships. Uh, Do what needs to be done. Say what needs to be done. Um, 
several years ago, my mother died, but uh, she had congestive heart failure and, and Alzheimer's. But we knew that she was not doing well because the hospice had to move her to a hospice facility. But um, after she'd been there a couple of weeks, she rallied. And, and Thanksgiving Day and the day after Thanksgiving, she entertained the family, regaled us with stories, laughed, had a good time, followed everything that went on. And for the next couple of days was doing pretty well. I didn't realize in retrospect now that this is normal and this can happen. I thought it meant we had more time. So a couple of days later, my dad wasn't feeling well and because uh, I would pick him up every day and we'd drive over to see mom. And, and uh, so I said, um, he said, it's going to take me a while to get longer to get dressed. I just got up. I'm not feeling well. And I'm like, dad, it's okay. You know, mom's doing pretty well. We could just go tomorrow. It'll be okay. Why don't, why don't you just rest? He said, no, I can be ready after a while. And I said, well, just, just rest. I'll go see her. And so I did. But, you know, I'm kind of a a fairly important guy. So I had all these important things to do. So since dad wasn't there, I didn't see mom very long and went on about uh, my day. And the next morning, called dad, get ready. I'm coming to pick you up. Let's go see mom. He said, I'll be ready. Then my phone rang and it was hospice. My mother had died a few minutes earlier with no one by her side. That was a tough deal. It was a tough deal for me tough deal for dad because I thought that there'd be another day to say some things. There'd be another day to talk. And there wasn't. And there wasn't. So take care of things while you can. But if you can't, or even after the grief event occurs, you're not finished, there's still something you can do. And the word I would give you, which is a word I had to learn and practice, is forgive. When there's been a loss, you're going to need to forgive at least the person who's no longer here. They left or they died. Even the per- they left you for whatever reason, you need to forgive them. Now, even if you know, their death wasn't their fault, you still forgive them for leaving. And you forgive yourself for what you have left undone. Because to not forgive yourself is to have, it's like having a wound that you just pick at every day and it cannot heal. It cannot get better. At some point, you have to give yourself some mercy, and you have to give the situation some mercy and to forgive. You've probably heard this famous saying by Alexander Pope, who lived in the 18th century. He said this, he said, to err is human, but to forgive is, do you know his story? He had issues, part of it with his appearance, but he had issues with people. This is a guy that held a grudge. This is a guy that never got around to that divine part. And his life, even for all of his amazing writings and translations that he did of ancient texts, was not a happy one. At some point, we have to forgive. To not forgive basically just compounds your losses. It it can turn one loss into another loss because while you're still... um, uh, angry or resentful or bitter about one situation, you cannot move forward to face the next situation. And so it's, it's a very bad use of your life to allow the same hurt to hurt you over and over and prevent you from moving in the directions that God may be opening for you. Wherever you are, after the loss, forgiveness is most always going to be appropriate. Stories told of Robert E. Lee. 
after the Civil War, he's being entertained at a woman's house uh, for dinner. She takes him outside. She shows him uh, the charred remains of a tree, and she said, see that generally? She said, the Yankees did that. And I leave that tree in my yard to remind me how much I hate them. And Robert E. Lee's response when she kind of looked at him like, what do you think? He said, he said, I'd chop it down and forget it. I'd chop it down and forget it. There's a sense at which to not forgive just to continues to pile on the loss till it even gets worse. There's another story about Robert E. Lee that I think is interesting, and it's interesting because there's a controversy with it. Uh, sometime after the Civil War, he's at St. Paul's uh, Episcopal Church in Richmond, historically and up to that time, a segregated church. But there is a, a freed man, a freed slave, who when it's time for communion is the first one to come forward to the altar rail. And according to all the witnesses, as soon as the, uh, 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 the slave, former slave went to the altar rail, Robert E. Lee went to the altar rail and kneeled next to him. But what's fascinating to me is the way it is spun. A lot of people spin the story as this, as Robert E. Lee is saying, well, I know it's a new day, but by God, it's not going to keep me from worshiping the way I want. So I'll go up to the altar no matter who's there, which is kind of an interesting twist, I think. And then, of course, the other way is to say that he understood that these were new days and that he would need to forgive himself, seek forgiveness from others, and extend forgiveness for him to move forward and for our country to move forward. Now, I think that story is sort of a Rorschach test for us. And it it tells a little bit the way we twist it as to where we are, where we think forgiveness is sort of something fanciful and not realistic, or we think forgiveness is something absolutely vital that any spiritual, reasonable person would engage in, kind of shows, I think, where we are in this world. My advice would be like his. We have to move forward, forgive ourselves, get forgiveness from others as possible, and extend forgiveness. Billy Graham tells a story both in an old crusade and I think also in an article in his magazine years ago. The story was about a prodigal daughter who left home and ran off and eloped and married a man her parents didn't want her to marry, um, engaged in activities her parents didn't approve of, moved to another part of the country. Well, sure enough, as her parents could have predicted, that relationship fell apart. But she stayed in another part of the country, continuing to practice values not quite like her parents' values, and she found herself in a very difficult situation. Well, somebody who knew her and also knew her parents found out about it. And, and they called her parents and they said, I know where your daughter is. This is what's going on. My suggestion is that you write her and invite her home. And so the parents thought about their daughter who had basically wished them dead and had lived her own life her own way and they had to decide what to do. And this is what they did. With her new address, they wrote her a letter. They stuck a check in the letter, enough to pay off the debts she had acquired in this eastern state and enough to help her move back home. And they said, in the note, it was very brief, please come home. As the story goes, she opened the letter when she received it. She did pay off her debts. She did get her stuff. She did move home. It seems to me in times of grief, we find ourselves generally in one of two places. Either we're the kind of people that we need to go ahead and write that letter or where we are right now, 
we need to open it. 